So now let's get started with the session. So I'd first like to thank everyone for dialing into this SMA space speaker session entitled Mindspace, Cognition, and Space Operations. And especially thank our speaker, Dr. Nick Wright, for taking the time to present today. So hopefully everyone that dialed in received his bio and slides, which I sent out in an event invitation. And if you haven't received these materials, feel free to email me and I'll send those over to you. So now I'm going to give our speaker a quick introduction before I turn the floor over to him. Dr. Nick Wright is a consultant at Intelligent Biology and an affiliated scholar at the Pellegrino Center for Clinical Bioethics at the Georgetown University Medical Center. Uh, he applies insights from neuro neuroscience and psychology to decision making and international confrontations in ways practically applicable to policy. He's also conducted work for the UK government and the Pentagon Joint Staff and has worked very closely with SMA for several years now. So Dr. Wright, over to you. Thank you very, very much. Um, well, the first thing to say is, obviously, um, thank you to Doc and Nicole and Mariah and Alison and General Elder and others um, who have been a, you know, a huge... Uh when joining and leaving the conference, participants will hear silence. Very pleased to present the findings of the project uh, today. So if we could go to slide two. So strategy is the art of creating power. So what is strategy in space? Strategy in space is the art of creating power in space. And that's why we need to answer the question, how do you create power in space? So we can consider three uh, points that matter profoundly for US practitioners attempting to create power in space. So the first is that creating power has to involve both influence and control. It is simply the nature of power that it involves both influence and control. So power is the ability to influence another's choice to get a desired outcome, or also potentially to exert control by removing another's capability to choose. And so power here, uh, so what I mean uh, here by influence is not you know, handing out leaflets and things like that. I mean things like deterrence, escalation management, crisis management, uh, ally assurance, uh, credibility, uh, making threats and so on. Neither influence uh, nor control alone is sufficient to achieve intended effects. So that's the first point. The second point is there is a fundamentally cognitive uh, dimension to control. So to conduct deterrence operations or manage escalation requires anticipating how others will decide to respond to our actions. Anticipating your adversary is imperative for offense or defense. Thus, it's crucial to understand audience's decision-making. How can you put yourself in the other shoes in space operations? So uh, operations such as deterrence have a crucial cognitive dimension, and this is acknowledged in US, Chinese, and Russian thinking. And thus here I apply the latest neuroscience and cognitive work to understand how humans really make decisions, to get a realistic understanding of decision-making. And also, I identify key features of space operations that require distinct emphases compared to other domains, such as nuclear or conventional or cyber. And I examine their cognitive foundations uh, uh, to describe implications for strategy in space. And the third uh, issue is that the environment within which uh, you have to create power now and in the future. So strategy in space hasn't remained the same since Sputnik launched you know, now over six decades ago. And I would argue that we're in a new space epoch, uh, the gray zone entangled space age. 
uh, in which the risks are greater than in actually in space, than in either the Cold War or the unipolar, uh, the unipolar US moment that we've just left. So if we go to the next slide, slide three. So in the top right, this is just to reiterate that strategy in space is the art of creating power in space uh, to cause intended and avoid unintended effects. Uh, you need to involve both influence and control. And by influence, I mean things like deterrence, escalation management, credibility, ally trust, and so on. And you also need to think about that across the spectrum of conflict. So for example, in gray zone conflict, that's more than normal competition between states, but less than is traditionally thought of as war. In gray zone conflict, you cannot remove the adversary's capability. Uh, you, you, you can influence them to uh, to reduce their use of a capability, you cannot remove their capability. Control alone there is, is simply not sufficient. And if you look at the bottom uh, left panel, um, this is just to illustrate an adversary or audience's decision calculus. So they can make different, one, they can take one action or another action, and there are risk, costs and benefits associated with one, and there are costs and benefits associated with the other, and you're trying to, to, to influence them to choose one thing rather than another thing. And the key thing here is, is that space operations are not different in their nature, their fundamental nature from operations in other domains, but the character is different. So this is a bit similar to the nature and character of, of war, or the nature and character of conflict. The fundamental nature of conflict doesn't change across the ages and across domains, but the character changes. It's the same, with, same thing with space. And so what we need to do if we're thinking about the cognitive dimensions, the, nature, the fundamental nature of the cognitive dimensions in um, influence will not change uh, between domains, but clearly the character of co the cognitive dimensions will change, and so we need to uh, develop specific cognitive recommendations for space operations, and that's, that's what we try and do here. And another key issue is that um, we need to think about different emphases within the current space age. And so if we turn to the next slide, slide four, we see here that I've uh, uh, divided up um, the space ages into, into three. So the Cold War space age is pretty, uh, and just to say that the first uh, division is, pr is pretty un, un, uh, uncontroversial. So if you think about the Cold War space age from the launch of Sputnik in 1957 until the end of the Cold War, the key uh, characteristics here were that there was a fierce bipolar uh, competition as really a striking preponderance of US and uh, Soviet um, uh, power in space. 93% or so of, uh, of launches were, were, were US uh, and Russian. And the other key characteristic was that there was a fundamental uh, linkage between uh, space and the nuclear mission. Space and the nuclear mission were absolutely entangled. Um, and so space, uh, anything that happened in space, immediately uh, had implications for, for the nuclear domain. So then at the end of the Cold War, um, uh, we reached, if we essentially moved into what, what, what I termed here, the unipolar space age. So here, um, there was the collapse of the Soviet Union. Uh, and the second thing that happened was the revolution in military affairs. So the 1991 uh, First Gulf War um, pioneered uh, the use of uh, space in conventional warfare. But it's also important to remember that actually the Soviets pioneered a lot of that revolution in military affairs thinking. So the Office of Net Assessment in the Pentagon, a lot of those ideas were, came originally from studying uh, uh, Soviet 
uh, thinking that have, proceed, uh, have preceded uh, their own thinking. And the only reason the Soviets didn't implement something approximating to a revolution in military affairs is simply because they couldn't. Uh, they ran out of money and, and, and so on. So um, what sent us from the Cold War Space Age into the Unipolar Space Age was a change of competition on Earth, and that expended, extended into space. And now I'd argue um, that we are, have entered into a grey zone entangled space age. A new earthly competition uh, is extending into space. And there are two distinguishing features of this new uh, grey zone entangled space age. So the first is um, that the space strategic conflict is mirroring the grey zone conflict on Earth. And I'll talk a bit more about grey zone conflict uh, and space a little bit later. And the second is that the conventional and nuclear space missions are becoming deeply entangled. Uh, and uh, my former colleague at the Carnegie Endowment has a fantastic new uh, paper on that entanglement. Jane Jackson has a fantastic new paper on that entanglement. But essentially, um, unlike, this is not like the Cold War, because now um, the nuclear and conventional missions are deeply uh, uh, entangled. So, if we move to the next slide. Uh, so this is to slide five. I'm going to describe now a broad, um, a broad uh, framework, or uh, uh, the broad framework within which I've tried to think about cognition and space operations. So at the top there, you see again the adversary's decision calculus, or an audience's decision calculus, because there are lots of important audiences. And one key thing for deterrence or escalation management or offense or defense is to try and think outside in, to put the audience's decision calculus at the heart of planning's influence. And the reason why that's really important to, 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 to say, even though it sounds very obvious, is that people just simply don't do that. And that's not just uh, 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 in governments, that's, that's across a wide variety of different things. So if you say to people, try and think about your audience, put yourself in the shoes of the audience and produce things that are important for the audience, not just important for you. People just don't do that very well. And this is why, for example, if you look in, in, in the strategic world, people like Thomas Schelling said that was a key, uh, 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 that was a key recommendation of his Nobel Prize winning work from the 1960s, Joseph Nye, Harvard's, one of Harvard's most eminent uh, uh, international relations scholars. That's a, uh, the, origi the originator of the idea of soft power. That's one of his key recommendations from his 2004 book on soft power. Everybody talks about how important it is um, to think about, put yourself in the shoes of the adversary. Uh, and the reason is, is that people don't do that very well. So that's one really important thing. And if you want to know a bit more about sort of some, up, some, some tools for doing that and ways of thinking about that, you can go back to the SMA report um, from last year uh, uh, on the Grey Zone um, project. And just to say, this type of thinking is compatible with, for example, uh, the type of planning one suggested in the deterrence operations, joint operating concept, etc., uh, etc. Et and so one point is to think outside in. And then a second point is to take culture seriously. So the way the world is understood from Beijing is not the same as from Tampa or Washington or London or Paris or whatever. And it's important to take culture seriously. And so within this frame, with this framework in mind, so having a realistic understanding of the average decision making that's at the heart of the of, of, of the influence, uh, of planning for influence, and also taking culture seriously, um, we can start thinking about the specifics of cognition in space operations. So if we go to slide six, 
but there you'll see, uh, if you're thinking about uh, how to do influence for deterrence, escalation management, offense, or defense, there are lots of factors that people have argued are key for space. And this is one of the first things that one thinks about is space within thinking about space operations is there are lots of factors that aren't necessarily unique to space, but that are particularly emphasized in space. And there's a, there's a large number of them. And so I put them all there on, or a lot of the ones that, that, that have been most uh, widely discussed on, um, on slide six. And one of the nice things one can do if one thinks about their cognitive bases is that if you think about what are some key, what, what, are, the, what are the core underlying cognitive factors that can help us think about these, these aspects of space operations, then that sort of breaks down uh, these key factors for space into some sort of manageable bites. So if you go on to the next slide, on to slide seven, you can see that I've divided into uh, seven, uh, seven different groups uh, of uh, uh, key factors for space, each of which relate to different cognitive foundations. The first four relate to all uh, space powers, and then the final three matter, uh, or additional factors that matter in particular for Sino-US interactions. And I'm going to go through each of these different uh, seven areas um, in turn. So if we first turn to, if we next turn to slide eight. So slide eight um, is, uh, so as you see in the top of slide eight, we can think about the fact that a key fact of that space is uninhabited uh, and that the destructiveness of space operations is is quite a bit less than in other domains, so for example, conventional or obviously um, nuclear. And the relevant cognitive foundation here is that there will be much uh, 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 less social motivations invoked uh, by, um, by space operations than, than operations in these other domains. So what do I mean by social motivations? So by social motivations here I mean um, human motivations to, for example, will, humans will pay costs to reject unfairness, to, um, to reject injustice, uh, uh, to uh, reject uh, uh, you know, impugn, uh, in people impugning their honor and so on and so forth. So basically humans are prepared to pay costs to reject injustice and unfairness. And this matters in space or in space operations because space operations will occur within the broader context or are likely to occur within a broader context of cross-domain um, operations. Essentially, because humans pay large costs to reject perceived unfairness and injustice, this complicates the perceived legitimacy of potential US responses to adversary actions in space. And so First, to describe some of the evidence underlying the fact that humans pay large costs to reject things like unfairness and injustice. So there's a classic uh, game called the ultimatum game. So uh, uh, one type of, uh, uh, so this is just one, one, one simple example. So uh, for example, I could be offered uh, uh, 10, I'm given $10, and then I can offer, uh, a, I can offer to split that um, to, for example, do dock fine. So I can offer him a split of uh, where I would keep $9 for myself and offer him $1. And if he accepts that offer, then we get the split as proposed. I get $9 and he gets $1. And if he rejects it, um, then we both get zero. Okay? So his, um, 
his decision is either, if he's entirely thinking purely about himself, then his decision is between either having $1 or having $0. So he should basically accept any amount that I offer him, however low it is. Even if I was offering him a, you know, a split of, I was going to get 999, uh, 999 uh, 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 dollars, uh, and he was going to get $1, he should still um, accept that split because he's going to get $1 versus getting $0. But actually, what we know is that human beings typically will pay costs to reject that unfairness. They will often reject uh, offers below about a quarter. Um, and this is shown even when people are paying for many months' salary, etc., etc. Um, so there's very robust evidence for this. And it's been shown across a wide variety of different cultures and so on. And we also see the rejection of unfairness um, and injustice impinging on international relations so and in in the real world so for example if you think about the uh, moral uh, dimension uh, impinging you can think about Iran when they rejected the um, when they rejected the uh, British offer in 1951 for a, a 9-1 uh, 1950s for a, for a 9-1 split of the oil revenues they rejected that uh, the British had threatened an embargo, and they 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 bore that cost, and then eventually there was the 1953 coup uh, in Iran, and so on. So people pay high costs to reject what they perceive as being unfair. You can see this in the uh, 2001 EP3 reconnaissance plane incident, where it landed over Hainan, uh, landed on uh, Hainan Island. Um, uh, the the key issue for the Chinese was the fact that one of their pilots had died. That was that was the key issue for them. And of course, we see this uh, human, uh, the idea that um, uh, humans uh, matter in particular. There's a key moral component uh, in the use of tripwire forces. For example, this is a critical US thinking during the Cold War. Uh, tripwire forces were used in um, Berlin, for example. So why does this matter for space and, and thinking about deterrence? So if we look at the, the, the left panel, you can see at the top left there, the uh, deterrence operations joint operating concept. So this is a DOD document from 2006. And you can see there, for example, essentially the core concept is essentially that the adversary can choose between acting and restraint, and there are costs and benefits associated with acting and costs and benefits associated with restraint. The idea is to try and, and, and understand those and, uh, and try and alter them. So if we then think about decision-making the ultimatum game in, in, in the panel just uh, next to that, if you're thinking purely about material costs, you cannot, it is impossible, to explain people's behavior uh, in the ultimatum game purely thinking about just material costs. You have to add in the cost of unfairness in order to explain how human beings really make decisions in something like the ultimatum game. And the reason why this matters in space is that because space is uninhabited, because there is much less destructiveness to operations in space, because satellites have no mothers, uh, as added sort of an old uh, saw within the, within the space community. Uh, as shown in the bottom panel, there will just be a lot less um, uh, 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 weight of unfairness for space operations uh, than for um, uh, conventional actions uh, of an equivalent uh, military impact, or for example, nuclear actions. And on the right, there are five um, implications and recommendations related to this. So the first is that I would argue that it will require stronger deterrent threats in space um, uh, to be credible um, 
to uh, deter actions of a uh, similar uh, military impact outside space. So you need stronger deterrent threats in order to deter an action in space uh, than you would need uh, to be credible in order to deter actions of a, an equivalent military uh, uh, significance outside space. Um, because, it's, because it has less of this uh, 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 social motivation associated with it. An analyst should ask, how fair will this be perceived to be? How fair will these actions be perceived to be? Secondly, uh, there may well be mismatched civilian and military perceptions. So civilian decision makers on both sides, in fact, may well be thinking much more about the uh, political or, or, or social, the political dimensions that, it, that, that include these more social motivations, whereas military planners may well be thinking much more about purely the military or strategic dimensions. And as a consequence of that, you can have mixed perceptions, uh, both in, for those making actions and also those receiving actions between the civilian and military decision makers on both sides. And this can lead, uh, uh, you know, this can lead to disaster and escalation scenarios. And we saw, you know, there's a lot of scholarship discussing that, uh, for example, uh, in the run-up to World War One. So. Importantly there, one should try and mitigate these issues by communicating political and military impacts ahead of time, um, as well as during crises. Thirdly, US cross-domain responses to space actions may have reduced perceived legitimacy. And so, if the US is going to make an action in another domain uh, in response to an adversary's space action, if the US is going to make an action, they're going to have to work harder to mitigate the, the effects of that response in key third parties. So, for example, amongst key, key audiences, like if it was an action in, involving European theatre, uh, key audiences would involve German elites and German, uh, the German population, for example. And so one is going to have to work a lot harder to legitimate uh, uh, cross-domain responses um, than one, one might anticipate. Fourth, um, Precisely because it uh, complicates uh, US responses, this makes space particularly attractive for gray zone activities, and so one should anticipate that this is likely to be something the adversary is going to do, they're going to use within the gray zone. And finally, fifth, it's important to realize that from an ally's perspective, is extended deterrence against adversary space option, uh, against um, allied space operations credible? So. Is it credible to the Japanese that uh, that the U.S. will actually um, uh, uh, defend or, or would make some kind of plausible response uh, uh, to a uh, Chinese action against Japanese space assets? Um, that's a critical question, and the only way that the U.S. can 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 reassure the Japanese of that is to build trust. So. Legitimacy is a, a key principle in joint doctrine uh, for good reasons, uh, and um, and the key here is to begin to describe how we can use that idea uh, to it to and implement it in planning for space operations. So if we now go to slide nine, we can think. And so if you look at the top here, there are a number of other key factors for space. So this is uh, difficulties in attribution. Um, difficulties in damage assessment, uh, that space has considerable dual-use technology. Uh, a lot of what goes on in space is highly classified. 
that's both the case in the US, but I mean, perhaps even more so, for example, here in the UK. Uh, and there's also, uh, you know, a wide variety of reversible um, uh, uh, actions that can now be taken in the space. And so if we put all of these key factors of space together, the thing that really unifies them is that they all increase uncertainty. They all increase uncertainty uh, uh, in space operations. And a core um, emphasis in space operations is the importance of uncertainty. So fortunately, um, we don't have to just think about uncertainty as one uh, sort of you know vast, complex, amorphous blob. What we know about uncertainty is, is that that actually we can think about very distinct and important uh, 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 aspects of uncertainty. And the brain, the human brain, the brain of humans and other animals, uh, has exquisite uh, uh, machinery, neural machinery, for uh, dealing with uncertainty. Because uncertainty is just so important for, for humans and other animals to survive. And one of the key distinctions uh, in the way that the human brain deals with uncertainty is dealing with risk and dealing with ambiguity. So we can split uncertainty up into risk and ambiguity. So if you look on the left side of slide nine, you'll see that there's um, risk and ambiguity. So risk is where is known unknown. So it's like crossing a coin. Um, and you have 50-50 chance of winning or losing, or whatever it might be. So you have known probability. It's a known uncertainty. Whereas in ambiguity, as you see there with the old lady, or the young lady, there is a second layer of uncertainty. Before you even get to think about the risk, there's a second layer of uncertainty, which is, well, what, what, what is it? Uh, you know, what, what is it that I'm even seeing in the first place? So is that image, for example, an old lady or a young lady? An old lady or a young lady? So critically, we can start thinking about uncertainty, these two different aspects of uncertainty, risk and ambiguity, and thinking about what do these two different aspects of uncertainty, how can we use these as tools to think about um, uh, space operations? So first of all, ambiguity. Um, so one thing to say is, is that ambiguity can be used as a tool, uh, and it's been, you know, we've seen this has been effectively used by a number of adversaries. For example, little green men uh, in East Ukraine, little blue men that people have argued uh, are in the South China Sea, and so on and so forth. Uh, this uh, enables more deniable offensive actions. Um, uh, it also enables one to affect outcomes in third-party states without visible commitment. Uh, and it also enables actions to be taken, uh, so there's less space uh, lost if red lines are crossed, for example. So you, one can use ambiguity as a tool. The second thing is that one may wish uh, to reduce the ambiguity of an adversary's actions. Um, and this could be, for example, um, uh, by investing in attribution. And there are two reasons um, to reduce the ambiguity of an adversary's actions. One is to reduce the ambiguity for one's own purposes, so one understands better what's going on. And the second reason is in order to communicate uh, um, uh, one's interpretation to allies and important third parties. Um, and this becomes really important uh, you know, once one starts thinking of real-world escalation scenarios. So if you're thinking about any uh, escalation scenario in Europe, for example, again, German elite, German public opinion, is going to be uh, critically important. Um, and you're going to have to be able to communicate um, you know, 
basically what's occurred. A recent example of this one in the space domain, uh, but outside was the UK trying to convince everybody uh, about uh, Novichok, uh, the use of a, of a nerve agent um, in the UK, which they wanted to attribute to Russia. And it's only by building trust and, and sort of taking long-term commitments you're able to be able to communicate uh, attribution to uh, allies and other important third parties um, uh, during crises uh, and so on. A third point is that to de it's, uh, deterring ambiguous actions is difficult, and that's particularly the case where ambiguous actions uh, may occur uh, over a an extended period of time, where no individual action is, um, where no individual action rises above the threshold uh, that one for which one might respond, but taken together, all of those actions um, uh, 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 may constitute a significant threat. So an example there would be the use of uh, reversible uh, dazzling or jamming, etc., in space. And really, um, the only or one one key thing there may well be to uh, communicate to the adversary ahead of time the responses um, um, that will be made to that kind of um, cumulative action. Um, and fourth, it's just important to say that conciliatory gestures are important to control escalation, but given the ambiguity in space, these may well have to be made um, outside the space domain. In terms of risk, so now we're thinking not about ambiguous actions, but manipulating risk. Um, one uh, useful uh, uh, fact that has come out of a wide variety of different studies from the criminology world, just looking at how you deter criminals from a wide variety of different actions. So uh, obviously there's a huge amount of data on how to deter criminals. And one important um, uh, uh, issue there is that if you're thinking about deterring a criminal, if you're thinking about deterring somebody else from making an action, you're making threats, what is the, what's the most effective way of making threats? You could increase the likelihood of your, of your response, you could increase the magnitude of your response, or the timeliness of your response. And basically what they found is, is that it's increasing the, communicating the likelihood that you're going to respond, increasing the likelihood you're going to respond is more effective, uh, there's, there's good evidence that that's more effective than either increasing the magnitude of the threat uh, or the timeliness of the threat. So that's something to think about in terms of trying to uh, deter a variety of space actions. Baseline data can help turn events from ambiguous to risky. And another point I just make here is an interesting point, a Nobel Prize winning point, that humans overweight small probabilities. So humans, for example, will buy a lottery ticket, it's a tiny probability, and they overweight the small probability of winning. So humans overweight small probabilities. And so what that means is there's a big difference between certain and quite certain. Uh, and this has an impact on space operations where uh, if one is using a reversible, uh, reversible uh, uh, tool, such as dazzling, jamming, whatever, that may uh, temporarily, reversibly uh, degrade an adversary's, um, uh, degrade an adversary's uh, cap space capability, a particular satellite, whatever it might be. Now, one may think, okay, well, I've done that, and now that's over. But the mere fact of having turned that satellite from something in, that was certainly of use to something that may only be of use might have a much, a disproportionately large impact on the adversary's reliance on that asset. 
uh, it might have a much bigger impact than one might anticipate. And that actually is something that was shown recently in a CSIS, uh, a series of CSIS war games on, on space that was published last year. So if we turn now to the next slide, slide 10, two other key, if you look at the top there, two other key factors for space are that space is borderless and there's a lot of uh, 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 problems associated with creating space debris from kinetic action. And essentially, these two features relate to what's called in the psychology world uh, the tragedy of the commons. The tragedy of the commons is essentially that we're all better off if we don't uh, damage the common good. Um, but, uh, but actually, as individuals, we're best off if, if, if everyone else is restrained and we ourselves are not restrained. That's, that's the best thing for us. And, and an example of that was grazing uh, sheep. This is where it comes from originally. Grazing sheep or, or cows, whatever it might be, on the, co you know, on the commons of oldie England. We're all best off if everyone's restrained, so there's a nice lush, uh, lush common um, so that we can then graze all our sheep on there. Um, uh, but sadly... Uh, we all have an individual incentive to be self-interested and 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 create problems for everybody else. So, as a huge amount, again, this is a, some lady called Ellen Ostrom won a Nobel Prize um, for, for talking about this uh, uh, for some decades. Uh, and the truth is, is we know that human beings. It sounds like an absolutely insoluble problem, the tragedy of the commons, but we know that humans do actually overcome the tragedy of the commons um, quite often. Uh, Importantly, can, you can't overcome a tragedy of the commons um, uh, using control. The only way you can overcome it is using uh, influence. Influence, um, you can influence people not to create debris. That is the only way you can uh, you can overcome a tragedy of the commons. Um, and so, how do we do that? So, what do we know from psychology about how to overcome tragedy of the commons? There are three things essentially. You can uh, generate um, uh, reputational costs. So you can increase the reputational costs of creating debris in key audiences uh, by effectively communicating attribution, for example. And you need to build key audiences understanding that space can be damaged. Punishment is the second main way that you can avoid uh, tragedy of the commons. So you need to create what one might convey that creating debris wantonly is itself punishable, for example, through economic or other means. And the third main way to uh, uh, influence others uh, to show restraint, prevent the tragedy of the commons, is using norms, institutions, and legitimacy. And again, here the US can't impose norms on its own, it needs to build extended influence with allies and third parties. And it's important here that the US has, uh, and, and a lot of other countries really have done a terrible job in terms of building um, uh, diplomatic um, uh, consensus uh, uh, in space. So, for example, when the US uh, had a big diplomatic initiative uh, in a, lot, a few years ago, um, uh, around um, space norms and so on. Um, really, e even close allies like the UK, Japan, France, and so on. Really, uh, we're not, we're not, we're not fully on board with it. Um, and it's very important to to uh, to try and build these diplomatic uh, um, maneuvers. So, if we move to the next slide, uh, some other key factors uh, for space that affects all uh, space powers. So firstly, there's fragility of space assets and there's offense dominance. It's much easier to be offensive in space and it's very hard to defend assets in space. And the relative cognitive foundation here is, is this leads to rapid decision making. So um, I won't dwell on this too much, but as you see there, there are two people there. There's uh, von Schlieffen, the famous von Schlieffen clan uh, before the First World War. Um, 
before the first world war, they all lived in an offense-dominant world. Uh, everyone thought the offense uh, was uh, was critical. So the French had this cult of the offense. Uh, the Germans thought offense like Schlieffen was absolutely central, and so on and so forth. Everybody thought the offense was was critical, and that makes everything extremely unstable, obviously. Uh, then, of course, when you do have the offense, then you're under enormous amounts of stress, uh, or the potential for actual offensive action are under huge amounts of stress. And von Moltke, who's, who, who's, who's below there, uh, actually, uh, the man almost had a breakdown. He was in charge of the German army, actually, when they, when they, need, when they did go to war in 1914, uh, and, and, and suffered uh, huge uh, amounts of stress. Um, so, what can we do about, about this? Um, so, first of all, attend to the perceived offence-defence balance. So consider doctrine and rhetoric from the competitor's perspective. So I think in particular there, for example, US doctrine on uh, space control, for example, does sound extremely, uh, 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 um, you know, might sound, if, if one imagined from the Chinese or Russian perspective, uh, that might sound um, uh, potentially somewhat um, offensive. Secondly, uh, manage time pressure. Um, it's quite a bit of literature thinking about using deliberate pauses, for example, to slow decision making during crises. And thirdly, manage stress during decision making. This is through things like using, you know, high simulations and so on. And it's just important, perhaps, for U.S. decision makers to appreciate how unfamiliar those in other countries are uh, with space. So even in, in countries such as the UK or Japan, really, there's, 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 there's much less familiarity with space operations um, uh, than there is in the US. And so it's important to encourage allies to conduct their own simulations and also conduct um, joint simulations. So now, those are factors, those are four sets of factors that, that matter across all space powers. And so now if we go to slide 12, we can see the first of the factors that matter particularly, additional factors that matter particularly in US China scenario. So perhaps one of the most profound um, difficulties for the US is that the US has an asymmetric space dependency. So as you see up there at the top right, initially US has an asymmetric space dependency. The US simply relies much more on, on, on space uh, to do a wide variety of, of things than, uh, than uh, a plausible adversary. And um, so now we can think, for example, about, uh, and so we can think about how, uh, how might um, uh, human biases in planning um, affect planning ahead for the problems that come from that, from that US uh, asymmetric space dependency. So, and just to say, so before I do that, though, I'm just going to say that one of the things is to think through what a lot of people have argued, well, actually, now China, for example, is having much increased space dependency itself, and so the asymmetry is becoming a lot less serious. So the Chinese may be much more reluctant to take uh, to take conflict into space because they now themselves have a lot a lot more to lose. Um, so if you look at the two maps on the left, the top map is basically the four likely earthly places uh, that could lead to a scenario uh, that could lead to a serious conflict, uh, a Sino-US conflict, uh, the Korean Peninsula, uh, the uh, East China Sea with Japan, uh, the Taiwan, um, uh, Taiwan, and uh, four the South China Sea. So those are the four places, uh, and obviously I've thought quite a bit about these different areas, which a lot of people have as well. Um, but really, it's difficult to sketch out that many scenarios in which the Chinese have a significant um, dependency on space. So even if perhaps 
one that might be the most serious uh, for them would be the uh, Taiwan scenario, which is at the bottom panel. One might think about a variety of different ways that the Chinese might have something to lose um, in that type of scenario. Um, for example, they might need satellites for their anti-ship ballistic missiles um, and so on. Really, uh, it, it certainly, I think it's really from uh, an unclassified um, uh, perspective, um, it seems there would still be a large uh, Chinese uh, incentive uh, 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 to potentially attack first. In a, uh, it, once you got to the point where there was a very serious scenario that might involve that. So, um, so I think there still is a large asymmetric space dependency, and how might human um, problems, human improvement planning from the human brain uh, affect that? So, two ways uh, that the brain thinks ahead that may affect planning are pruning and the optimism bias. So pruning, basically the humans tend to be averse to looking beyond a big negative event. People don't like looking beyond something that's big and unpleasant to think about. So an example here, or one of the most recent examples, was in 2003 with the invasion of um, uh, the US invasion of Iraq, um, where there was just simply a refusal to look past um, uh, the large negative events that they were uh, that US forces. And British and other forces uh, were not going to be welcomed, that there was going to be significant civil unrest, and as a consequence, there was, uh, there was simply a lack of planning conducted for that, uh, and that was obviously a disaster. And we see other similar cases uh, in a wide variety of different cases um, uh, throughout history. Um, and so, it's very difficult to deal with that problem, it, 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 as evidence of the fact it keeps recurring. But some ways to think about it are to recommend integrated war games involving uh, space, and which involves both very senior civilian as well as military decision makers, um, to think through some of these issues, um, and uh, to ask specifically what happens the day after, and get those people uh, to ask these questions and think through some of these different scenarios. Secondly is the optimism bias. So humans tend to plan optimistically. Um, and so the US, may, US planners may, for example, tend to plan optimistically uh, in these types of scenarios. Um, and um, so what can we do about that? Uh, so for example, British government has introduced a correction for optimism bias in a lot of its um, financial planning um, within its um, Whitehall uh, central government plans, for example. Um, and one uh, good way of, of, of trying to overcome an optimism bias uh, is to ask, uh, you know, because we all have this optimism bias. If you ask me how long is something going to take, I'll always say it'll take two weeks, and then it'll take three weeks, and so on and so forth. So one way to overcome this is to say, how long would it take for somebody else? And so one can try and just do a simple check and recommend asking, you know, if I were planning this for somebody else, uh, how would my plan differ? So try and think uh, uh, um, uh, from the perspective of another. So now if we go to, and that should help over, you know, there's nothing one can do for certain, but that can, at least it's a tool for helping overcome some of these biases. So now if we turn to slide 13, we can think about, we can think about um, another key factor for the US, which is extended influence and extended deterrence. Um, so, uh, but I think we're going to run out of time to talk about that, but that's, that's going to be a key issue. and. The critical issue there is how to build trust and confidence um, with allies over space operations. And a lot of this is going to be about 
encouraging change within allies as much as it is about encouraging change uh, as, a, as a changing within the US. So the, the US, for example, needs to encourage change within allies in, or, in order for those allies to understand US thinking on space. So even countries such as the UK and Japan um, have very close alliances with the US. You know, there has to be um, training, doctrine, and simulations within countries uh, and also um, jointly. So now if we go to slide 14, um, we can think about one further factor that's now particularly important um, uh, for China, which is that uh, China, Chinese, uh, East Asian people more generally, tend to think about things in a more context-dependent way. So what do I mean by a more context-dependent way? So East Asian people tend to engage in more context-dependent or holistic cognitive processes by attending to the relationships between an object and its context, um, whereas Westerners tend to think in a more context-independent way. They think about the thing shorn of its, shorn of its context. And that may make me sound like some kind of horrendous throwback to, you know, 1930s terrible uh, sort of uh, stereotyping, but this is based in the work of um, hundreds of, um, of scientific studies. And I myself conduct studies at Peking University, which is sort of China's top university, and I do a variety of cognitive studies. And you can just show that, that basically East Asian people um, think about things in a more context-dependent um, way. And you can also see that this is reflected in a wide variety of different um, aspects of Chinese doctrine. Uh, for example, um, they think about, they have a more holistic or context-dependent thinking on deterrence, uh, compellence, um, offense and defense, for example. Um, and so to militate against, uh, for US analysts to militate against their own cultural prisms, US analysts can specifically ask, what is the broader context of a particular action? And now if we turn to slide uh, 15, the very final thing I'm going to talk about is space and gray zone conflict. So I think this is an increasingly important um, area moving forward because this is basically the dominant mode of competition now between the great powers and the international system, sadly. So gray zone conflict, and the critical thing to remember here is that gray zone conflict in space is necessarily limited conflict, and thus essential aim is to influence the decision-making of adversaries and other key audiences. So success here will require policymakers to understand and wield influence in space. And just to say, it's not just that the Chinese and Russians, for example, are building capabilities that will enable them to undertake grey zone actions, but they're also uh, conducting a variety of grey zone actions. Um, so, for example, since uh, uh, during the Crimean conflict, for example, Russia jammed GPS signals in Ukraine, um, uh, and um, it used uh, a variety, uh, uh, according to some reports, even six different jamming and radio monitoring platforms in Ukraine from 2014 to 2017. Uh, and then there are, you know, all sorts of reports of uh, laser and, and other dabbling and, 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 and cyber attacks and so on involving both uh, likely uh, Japanese and, uh, Japanese, sorry, Chinese and Russian uh, origin. Um, and what I would argue is, I mean, there's not, not time to discuss this now, but one needs to think about what are the key emphases within the grey zone and how does that relate to space and build operational capabilities that relate directly to those um, aspects of grey zone conflict. What I term the five multiples of the grey zone. And that's, uh, you know, and I elaborate those in, in the report. Now if we go finally to um, slide 16. So to sum up, 
strategy in space is the art of creating power in space. And so, in fact, if we look at Joint Publication 314, Space Operations, in the glossary it actually describes that they define space power. And so space power is the total strength of a nation's capabilities to conduct and influence activities to, in, through, and from space to achieve its objectives. But then it doesn't really uh, describe how to achieve that or discuss that in, in, in much more detail. For example, even, even giving a definition of space to Terence and so on. And so what we aim to do here is describe um, how to achieve influence in space with the current epoch-based and evidence. And this will involve both influence and control. Uh, it will involve putting the audience decision calculus uh, based in a realistic understanding of human decision making, putting the audience decision calculus at the heart of planning for strategy in space, one tailored to the cognitive factors that matter, particularly in space. And finally, we need to tailor uh, what we're doing um, to the current epoch in space, which is not the Cold War, and it's not the unipolar um, space age, uh, but a grey zone entangled space age in which influence is becoming uh, increasingly important. And on that note, uh, I will end. Thank you very much.